Tudor Travel Show. It's Sarah here, the Tudor Travel Guide, and this is our bumper festive edition. There will certainly be a festive theme along the way. So in a moment, I'm going to tell you all about what we're going to be listening to on today's programme. But before I do so, I wanted to let all you lovely listeners know that Le Ton Viandre, a novel of Anne Boleyn, which was my first novel published in two volumes, the first in 2012 and the second in 2013, is back. Yay! So some of you may know I certainly had questions from people saying, what's happened to it? I'm trying to buy it online and I can't. Well, the short answer is this. Um, the novel was published by a publisher who chose of their own volition to close down. And while the rights of the book were transferred back to me, there was a hiatus and the book went out of stock. Now, I have done some re-editing and some reformatting and the new and improved version of Le Ton Viandre, which I also call LTV affectionately and for short, is back for sale exclusively on Amazon. It's a time slip novel in which our 21st century heroine finds herself drawn back in time and in the novel of Anne Boleyn when Anne is on the brink of a historic love affair with Henry VIII. The conception of Anne Boleyn is a strange story indeed. In many ways I always feel the book happened to me. I was visiting Hever Castle on one very sunny hot August afternoon and after walking round the castle I was sat having a picnic on the grounds, on the grass outside the castle with some friends and I was daydreaming and thinking just what it would be like if for a moment you could find yourself in the body of your historical hero and heroine. And in that moment, the idea of the plot was born. And when I got home, I started writing and literally it was like taking dictation. It was like the book was being written through me and I felt utterly compelled to tell the story of Anselin innocence in a very first hand and personal way. So in many ways, LTV is my baby. And I hope if you haven't yet read it, you will grab yourself a copy and immerse yourself and lose yourself completely in the world of Anne Boleyn. For those of you who are interested in perhaps uh, buying a copy for Christmas, it's not too late, either as a gift or perhaps as an, a bit of an escape when you've overdosed on TV, I will put some links um, in the text associated with this podcast on the home page in Podbean. So with that, I think it is time to introduce what we're going to be talking about today. And I said there was going to be a bit of a festive theme, and indeed there is. And in my first interview today, I go back to Hever Castle. If you recall, during the summer, I was invited back to see Hever dressed for Christmas, and it was invitation I just could not refuse. And so on a very chilly night in November, as you will hear, I headed off to Hever just after the castle had finished being decorated for Christmas and I met with Owen Emerson, house manager of Hever, 
and he showed me round and we had a chance to talk about a number of different Christmas traditions and also to explore a little bit about how the Berlins would have spent their time at Hever during Christmas when the children were still at home. If you're interested, accompanying the podcast is a blog uh, with a transcript based on our discussion and it also includes a number of different images so you will have a chance to supplement your listening with some visuals. Again, I will put a link to the blog in the text associated with the podcast. In the second part of the podcast, I'm going to be talking to Alary Lynn. Now, Alary Lynn is the curator of the Royal Ceremonial Dress Collection at Historic Royal Palaces. Many of you will know of the fabulous discovery of the Bacton altar cloth, said to be part of the sole surviving uh, part of a dress once belonging to Elizabeth I. It is an utterly unique item of clothing and the story of its discovery is fascinating and I'll be talking at some length with O'Leary about that story and I guarantee you'll be swept up in the adventure. But for now let's head on over to Heva and dive into Christmas. For Christmas now is begun. Make we merry more and less. For now is the time of Christmas. Hello, it's Sarah, the Tudor Travel Guide here, and here I am at Hever Castle in Kent, the childhood home of Anne Boleyn. And I'm here on a very chilly winter's evening, and here by special invitation, because we've come back to Hever to see the castle dressed for Christmas. In a moment, we're going to go inside and meet with Owen Emerson, house manager here at Hever, and we're going to hear all about some very special Christmas Tudor traditions. Also hear a little bit about how the Boleyns spent their Christmases at Hever when the likes of Mary, Anne and George lived here as children. So let's get in out of the cold. Come with me. Now we for Christmas now is begun. Make we merry more and last. For now is the time of Christmas. If he say he cannot do, then for my love ask him no more. But, but to the stocks and let him go. For now is the time of Christmas. Hello, Owen. Thank you so much for having us back here at Hever. Welcome. It's lovely to welcome you back. And I remember you invited us in the summer to come back at Christmas. And I've been very excited because I've never been to Hever at Christmas before. But as we can see, it's fully dressed for Christmas now and it looks beautiful. I know one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about, and I'm sure people will be very interested to hear a little bit about Tudor Christmases and how the Tudors spent their Christmas. And we're going to be exploring some of that in our discussion today. But maybe you could start by just giving us an overview of, of, of some of sort of the key dates of Christmas during the 16th century. Sure. Well, Christmas um, really starts during the Advent period. Uh, which is four weeks of relative austerity, fasting and soberity. Um, and that is sort of broken, like almost like a safety valve going off, as, as Alison Sim states, um, quite beautifully. 
and everything sort of lets rip and uh, much merriment and feasting is had over the 12 days. So that's from the 25th through to the 6th uh, of January. Uh, and although it's very much a, a seen as a Christian tradition, it does have much deeper roots yeah. uh, into pagan traditions, Viking traditions and also Roman traditions. And so the key dates would be what for our Tudor forefathers? Uh, so a key date will be Christmas Eve mm. uh, and that's when um, the last fasting day happens. Uh, so you wouldn't be able to eat, for example, cheese or eggs or meat on Christmas Eve. And that really heightens that, that period of fasting uh, for the last day. And it's on that day that the house would begin to be dressed. Oh, so absolutely. as you have been doing here at Heva. Indeed, yes, absolutely. And uh, although there are 12 days of Christmas, not all of them are given the same significance. Mm. Uh, but there are some of my, one of my favourite dates is the 28th, um, which starts off rather depressingly with the whipping of children. Oh, gosh. Um, it's uh, the date where the, the massacre by Herod is recognised. It's uh, the innocent, uh, day of innocence. Um, uh, and then things get rather more festive uh, and um, a boy bishop was usually appointed. Uh, so there's a real subversion of roles going on. And at court, there would be a, a Lord of Misrule. Uh, and this is someone who is uh, elevated for the Christmas period uh, into a higher status. And they're sort of the Ministry of Fun for Christmas. <laughs> one of my, my favourite days. So you've got a real mixture of the religious and also the secular and, the, and the, as you say, the letting down of one's hair and really having fun because life was tough then. And any other dates that we should know about in terms of the Tudor calendar? I think uh, one of the most significant um, dates is when um, everyone picks their tools back up again. So that happens on the first Monday after the 6th. It's known as Plough Monday. Um, now, uh, on Christmas Day, uh, or Christmas Eve rather, the plough was actually ceremoniously wrapped up with ivy, uh, as were spinning wheels, because uh, certain labour, anyway, was not permitted during the 12 days of Christmas. Uh, but on Plough Monday, um, the plough, the communal plough, will be taken round the villages and you were supposed to uh, donate to the, the ploughman. Uh, if you didn't, they were quite likely to plough up uh, the front of your house. Um, so that's, again, one of my favourite Tudor dates of Christmas. Yes. And Christmas ended on that day? That's right, yeah, absolutely. So that, that's your festive period over. It was back to work. That's right, yeah. From the Miller's Tale by Geoffrey Chaucer. And all above there was a gay psaltery, on which he played a knight's melody, so sweetly it rung, and Angelus at Virginum he sung. Now, one of the things we wanted to talk about was some Tudor festive traditions. And you brought me up here to the Queen's Chamber with some familiar friends. <laughs> but what are we going to talk about here, Owen? So we're in the Queen's Chamber and we're going to talk mm. about what the women did to decorate Heva. Okay. Um, and uh, 
more generally what women would have been doing during the festive period. To prepare for Christmas right. and, then, and then to see Christmas through. Exactly. So we talked about uh, Christmas being, uh, the house being decorated on mm. Christmas Eve. Mm. One of the things that Elizabeth Boleyn with her daughters Anne and Mary uh, may well have created for Heva is one of these. It's a kissing bow. Oh, this looks familiar and the whole mistletoe kissing thing, I'm, I'm, you know, I get a sense of the modern overtones there, but tell us a little bit more about it from a Tudor point of view. Absolutely. Well, it's all here, isn't it? The holly, the ivy, the uh. mistletoe, they're all things we recognise and today we probably recognise it as a wreath. Um, but this is more of a, a sphere globe-like um, decoration and it was made by sort of wiring together holly which has a natural curve to it mm. into two uh, circles and then they were bound together in, in a cross uh, to create a globe. So the holly and the ivy have uh, a, a significance for Christians and, and the Tudors. Uh, the holly represents the crown of thorns that uh, Jesus wore, the blood uh, of the berries uh, having particular significance. And the ivy uh, grows on trees, it relies on trees to grow, and therefore it had this sort of symbiotic um, symbolism uh, of the support that Christ gives to his followers. Oh, but tell me about the kissing bit, yes. Owen. What's, what's, as I say, I see the mistletoe there. What, what's the tradition around that? Indeed. Well, the mistletoe, again, has its roots in pagan traditions, but on a kissing bough, it served a purpose uh, because each berry that is on the mistletoe represented a kiss. Uh, so uh, warmly greeting your visitors, your peers, uh, you'd have a kiss under the kissing bough, but you'd also have to pluck off one of those berries. Mm. When the berries had run out, so would the kisses, unfortunately. Oh, what a shame. <laughs> but it's that continuity, isn't it, that we can see from this Tudor tradition through to the modern day use of mistletoe. It's still there. It's still there. That's wonderful. Well, thank you, Owen, for bringing me here to the fire in the Great Hall. It's the perfect place to be on this chilly winter evening. But we're here to talk about the second tradition associated with Christmas. So what is that? So we've already spoken about what the women will be getting up to on Christmas Eve. And we're living in a patriarchal society in Tudor England, so there's a division uh, between the genders of mm. what will be going on. And Thomas Boleyn uh, probably would have been taking his three sons out into the weald across the drawbridge uh, to fell a, a tree. Uh, one of the many oak trees that grows very successfully around this part of the country. Mm. Uh, and what they're doing is cutting down what will be called the Yule Log. Uh, now, we still have a, a Yule Log. It's much more chocolatey. I was going to say, it's the kind of you eat, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. And the reason it developed into a more chocolatey treat is because great halls like this um, really fell out of favour and uh, yet they became a, a much more chocolatey affair. Uh, but on Christmas Eve, the men would have felled this green log. Uh, the Berlin children would have dragged it across the drawbridge into the Great Hall here, where it would have been dressed by the women of the household. And by dressed, I mean it would have been tied up with ribbons, again, holly and ivy wrapped around, 
and the purpose of the Yule log was to keep it burning for the whole 12 days of Christmas. So you can imagine this is quite a sizeable log that they're bringing in. It is quite a feat, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. But am I right in saying that there was a tradition about keeping a bit of the Yule log? Absolutely, and this taps into an, an almost phoenix-like sentiment um, that you would keep a charred piece of the old Yule log and then light the new one with it. There's this sort of continuity that goes uh, with this tradition, which I, I find most endearing. talking about Tudor Christmas traditions but I'm really curious to know what Christmas was like for the Berlins particularly when the children were little you know what was Christmas all about for them it's really about shutting that winter coldness out passing that midwinter phase and welcoming in you know your nearest and dearest your social peers giving them fantastic food keeping them warm and just having a fantastic time a real celebration so anything else you can tell us about well, there was quite an exceptional Christmas in 1526 when Anne is uh, slightly older mm. and uh, this has only really recently come to light uh, through the research of Dr David Starkey so I'd love to tell you a bit more about Please it. Please do, I'd love to hear. Should we go in there, uh, chat? The bull's head in hand bear I bedecked with bay and rosemary and I pray you, my masters, be merry, quod estis in convivio. Caput apri de ferro, bread and slaughter's domino. Caput apri de ferro, bread and slaughter's domino. Now, Owen, you promised me a very special story about a Christmas at Teva, and I'm dying to hear more. Absolutely. Well, uh, Dr David Starkey very recently um, gave us this information at a public talk here at Teva, and he has been looking through Henry VIII's letters to Anne, which we know the majority of, were, of which were, were sent to Anne here mm. at Teva. Yeah. And uh, in one of the letters, he um, acknowledges that Anne has gifted him a jewel, uh, a jeweled ship, and he quite specifically uses the word etrenne, um, which is a French word which very specifically uh, relates to New Year's gifts. And uh, this we know was a jewel that Anne gifted to Henry on New Year's Day 1527, which is when in the Tudor period gifts were given, not on Christmas Day but on New Year's Day. And that's really significant because it places Anne here at Hever for 1526 during that Christmas period. And what it means is that Anne is actually making that decision to marry Henry here at Hever during that Christmas. So we can imagine that it must have been quite an exciting, perhaps a, a bit scary as well. Um, and I, I should imagine quite a lavish Christmas for the Boleyns. You can only imagine the excitement that there must have been here at that time. Absolutely. You can very easily imagine Thomas giving uh, Anne counsel, uh, perhaps even her brother George doing so. And uh, it must have been, you know, quite a 
quite something to be making this monumental decision. I mean, let's face it, not many decisions go on to uh, result in the king breaking away from the church <laughs> yeah. in Rome and uh, unfortunately to led to Anne's downfall as well. Okay. So you can't get you know, bigger decisions. More momentous than that, really. than that. No, that's true. Quite. But you mentioned something else, which was about New Year's gifts. And Indeed. we haven't talked about New Year, but that was a really significant time for the Tudors, wasn't it? It really was. And it's um, it, at this point, particularly at court, uh, when the gifts are given. Now, we don't have any information about this happening in, you know, more humble households. It might well have. Uh, but this is certainly where the gentry uh, gave their gifts to the king and where also the king would have uh, given his courtiers um, gifts as well. Mm. Henry is an incredibly lavish uh, king. We know that for his first Christmas, uh, he spends the equivalent of 13.5 million in today's money on the Christmas festivities at court. Uh, so this is really sumptuous and lavish affair. Uh, but New Year's gift giving is really a very opportune uh, moment to ingratiate yourself to the king. And there are rituals um, uh, reserved uh, for that period. It's also a period where the household would give gifts to the king mm. um, as well. Uh, but the king didn't always have to accept your New Year's gift. And uh, I want to tell you a bit more about gift giving in general and this uh, rather awkward etiquette of rejecting gifts uh, downstairs. Okay, so I think that's where we need to go next. Shall we? Okay, let's go. Now we merry all and some for Christmas now is begun. Make we merry more and less for now is a time of Christmas. Let, Let no man come into this hall. Groom, page, nor yet marshal, but that's some sporty bring with all. For now is the time of Christmas. Now we mirth all and some, for Christmas now is begun. Make we merry more and less, for now is the time of Christmas. If that he say he cannot sing some other sport, then let him bring that it may please at this festing. For now is the time of Christmas. Oh, and you've brought me down to the inner hall here, and I think we're going to be talking about this clock. So what has this clock got to do with New Year's gift? Right, so it's not actually a New Year's gift. This is a replica of the clock that Henry gifted to Anne for the occasion of their marriage in 1533. But I think it gives a really good indication of uh, the calibre and, and cost of um, the gifts that were both given to Henry and by him. Uh, so these are incredibly detailed and expensive items that will be exchanged at New Year. Uh, now, I alluded to earlier the fact that Henry didn't always accept gifts. Mm. And the year before this gift was given to Anne, Anne herself presented the king with some boar spe uh, spears, mm. uh, which he gladly received. But rather excruciatingly, uh, Catherine, of course, uh, who still considered herself very much to be his queen, mm. uh, gifted the king a gold cup, which he rejected very publicly. Must have been quite a point of humiliation for Catherine. Yeah. Uh, now, Henry didn't always reject uh, gifts from his former queens. Uh, he re retained a very good uh, relationship, for example, with the other Anne of Hever, Anne of Cleve 
leaves. Uh, even after the annulment of their marriage, he continued to receive her at court, for example, uh, at Christmas, and, uh, and uh, accepted her gifts. And of course, she was known as the King's sister, wasn't she? Absolutely. She was so much in favour, I guess, from having stepped aside so graciously for yeah, His Majesty. Absolutely. And it's probably apt that we're talking about that, Anne, in this room, mm. uh, because in the Tudor period, this actually would have been the Great Kitchens. And we know from one of uh, the more shady characters in Anne's household, uh, Thomas Carden, uh, that Anne actually had a passion for cooking. It's in his papers that we find this lovely little detail That's out. extraordinary, isn't it, to think of a Tudor queen just kind of putting on a penny and going and down doing some cooking in the, maybe in the kitchens, yeah, where else? I mean, most likely here, <laughs> if she's cooking in other people's households, I'm, I'm sure she'd be cooking here at Hever. Yeah. Now, cooking was traditionally a very much a male-dominated uh, area. Mm. There were exceptions, however, for example, sugar work. Um, very much like uh, the, the matriarch of the household would look after the tea in the 18th century, uh, in the early modern period, uh, it's the sugar that they're looking after. So I've made a recreation of one of the highlights of the Tudor banquet course, uh, a march pane. Would you like to have a look I at it? I would love to have a Fantastic. look at it. This is a march pane. Well, what is it? <laughs> so, we would recognise it today as marzipan. Oh, I see. Um, but in the early modern period, it was uh, not a decoration, but a meal in and of itself. Uh, so, this will be the highlight of the banquet, which was the most prestigious course of a feast. And it is essentially made of almonds, ground almonds, powdered sugar, beat up in a mortar and pestle, and rose water brought together into a paste and then baked. Uh, so you'd roll out a disc, mm. bake that, and then create your decorations. It was very commonplace um, to uh, tap into one's heraldry, uh, initials and, and such like. And this is served up and eaten as a meal um, uh, finisher, as it were. Oh, so it's almost like a dessert, yeah, as absolutely. we would think of it today. That's it. And I see here you've just done a wonderful little monogram of H.A., Henry and Anne, and of course, Anne Boleyn's crest. Absolutely. It looks absolutely beautiful, I have to say. Bless you. <laughs> <laughs> well, all that remains for me to say is thank you so much, Owen, for showing us around the castle, dressed for Christmas, talking to us about a Tudor Christmas at Hever. It's been absolutely delightful. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, it's one of my favourite times of the year, so pleasure's all mine. And, and how can people enjoy this for themselves? So I'd encourage people to go on the website, have a look at the dates that we're open. We're open right up until Christmas and then we have a, a couple of days off and then a winter walks period as well. Uh, so there's a huge amount to come and see here. We have an old-fashioned fairground. We have a beautiful trail through the garden, uh, which again is themed Alice in a Winter Wonderland amazing um, things to see in the grounds as well as the castle so I'd really encourage people to come and have a really memorable family Christmas here. Yes indeed and, and I guess with that all that remains to say is well a Merry Christmas to you Owen Merry Christmas. and also a Merry Christmas to you all. Merry Christmas. Now we merry soul and 
handsome. For Christmas now is begun. Make Queen Mary more and less. For now is the time of Christmas. Let, Let no man come into this hall. Groom, page, nor yet marshal. But that's some sporty bring with all. For now is the time of Christmas. I do hope you enjoyed your time there at Hever and that added to your festive spirit. Of course, as we've just heard, there was an enormous amount of festivity and celebrating at court at Christmas. But, like any other month in the year, there was plenty going on in the Tudor calendar in December. And so with that, I think it's the perfect cue to travel straight over to the TTG news desk and find out just what news is breaking in the Tudor month of December. Welcome to the December O'Clock News with your newsreader, Robert Cole. Here are the Tudor headlines for the month. The King's new bride-to-be, Anne of Cleves, lands in England. James V of Scotland dies at Falkland Palace. Mary Stuart becomes Queen of Scotland at just five days old. And on this sombre day, Mary I is buried at Westminster Abbey. Good day. We return to our top story. At 5pm yesterday evening, the 27th of December, the King's new bride-to-be, Anne of Cleves, arrived at Deal in Kent. The German princess's arrival on English soil is the culmination of weeks of careful diplomatic negotiations between His Most Gracious Majesty King Henry VIII and Anne of Cleves' brother, Duke Wilhelm of Cleves. Our new roving reporter, Bess Cavendish, witnessed the princess coming ashore and is following the royal party's progress towards London. She is here now to tell us about the events that have been unfolding on the Kentish shoreline. So, Bess, what can you tell us of the princess's arrival in England? Uh, yes, Robert, I have been following the welcoming party sent by the King to receive his new bride when she lands in England. Yesterday, we received the news that the King's new bride's peer finally set sail from Calais, where she has spent the last 15 days waiting for a break in the weather. The German princess, known in her homeland as Anna, finally came ashore around 5pm yesterday evening, escorted by William Fitzwilliam, who's the Earl of Southampton, and who His Majesty appointed to escort the lady safely across the Channel to England. As you probably know, Robert, there's no port here at Deal, so she had to be rowed ashore and was welcomed by the head of the welcoming committee, Thomas Cheney, who is Lord Warden of the Sink Ports, as well as Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk, and his wife, Catherine Willoughby. Ah, Bess, did you get to see the princess? Is she fair of face? Yes, I did, Robert. I'd say she's about 30 years of age, perhaps a little older looking than people here were expecting. She's certainly tall, a slim build, I'd say, and middling beauty. Although I confess the clothes that both her grace and her ladies were wearing are strange indeed and certainly not flattering. In fact, their garments are so heavy and unbecoming that, well, you might even say that they made them look ugly, even if they were beautiful. 
However, I should say that everyone who has met her grace so far speaks of how well she carries herself, just as you would expect from a woman of such high-born status. I see, I see. Where has she been taken to, and, and when is it expected that she will meet His Majesty? Well, well, Robert, she rested briefly at nearby Deal Castle, but she's already been escorted here to the more comfortable Dover Castle, where I am now. That's about eight or nine miles southwest of Deal. And as you may be able to hear in the last few hours, the weather has turned again and we are being blighted by high winds and driving rains, which are pounding this part of the country. And while it's possible that Anne may try and sit out the storm here, it's thought more likely that the entourage will set off towards Greenwich as soon as possible, where she's due to be formally received by the King. So here is the crucial question, if you can hear me, Bess. Uh, do you think His Majesty will be pleased with his new bride? Yes, it is hard to hear you, um, but I, I think I heard, um, yes, and it, it is a crucial question. In manners and how the princess behaves, I, I believe His Grace could ask for nothing more. However, as we all know, the king is most particular about what he does and doesn't find attractive in the wife, and this princess does not fit the usual profile. Also, I, I hear say that she speaks very little English and has not been educated in the pastimes that are greatly valued here in the English court, such as dancing and hunting. And I do fear that the couple will find they have little in common. But I guess Robert will know soon enough as they are due to meet on Blackheath near Greenwich Palace on the 3rd of January. Oh, well, not long to wait then. Uh, well, well, thank you for that, Bess, and I would take cover if I were you. So that concludes the December o'clock news. All that remains for me to say is that the TTG News Desk will return in January. But for now, it's back to the 21st century. that that didn't quite go as planned, don't we? Poor girl, she probably had such idealised vision of a happy marriage to a handsome prince. And then she met Henry. Well, maybe enough said about that. But what we're going to do now is we're going to jump forward, historically speaking, by almost 50, 60 years to the late Elizabethan period. For the second part of the podcast, I'm in discussion with Larry Lynn, at Hampton Court Palace and we are talking about the Bacton Old Cloth as I mentioned at the top of the show. Now this really is an utterly unique item and it's currently being exhibited at the palace until mid-February but I wanted to chat to Aleri in more detail because the story of its discovery and how the team have come to the conclusion that this piece, this piece of garment, this piece of textile once belonged to Elizabeth is really riveting. So let's head over to the palace where I caught up with Aleri. 
So welcome, Ilary, to the Tudor Travel Show. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure. Well, it's lovely to be here. So I'm here with you, actually, at Hampton Court Palace this morning, which is rather exciting for me, as there's all sorts of Christmas things going on here today. Yeah, it's a really festive time of year for us here. So in addition to the ice rink, we have decked, literally decked the halls with boughs of holly and... Uh, We've got uh, lots of Elizabethan characters walking around. That's wonderful. So it's an Elizabethan Christmas this it Christmas. It is, in honour of the Baxton altar cloth. Which, of course, is why we're talking today. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to know all about that. Obviously, you and I have met before because I had a chance to come down and have a sneak, a peek, a preview of the Baxton That's altar right, cloth. before it went in. Indeed. But I thought it would be wonderful to have you here on the show to tell our listeners all about it in person. But before we start talking about that, maybe you could just introduce yourself and let people know what you do here. Yeah, of course. So my name is Ellery Lynn, um, and I am the curator of the Royal Ceremonial Dress Collection, which is a collection of 10,000 items of royal and court and ceremonial dress. Um, and it's based here at Hampton Court Palace, but we display across our various palaces. So um, uh, the organisation that uh, I work for uh, looks after the Tower of London, Kensington Palace, Hampton Court Palace, uh, the Banqueting Hall at Whitehall, Hillsborough Castle and Kew Palace. Oh, wow. So we have quite a large portfolio and um, technically the dress uh, it goes on display to help us tell the stories of the palace uh, and and the people who lived and worked in them. So and that's what you've got an, um, you see an amazing array of costumes. I remember when I was here before and you just happened to say, oh, we've got George the third false yeah. waistcoat here yeah. on the table yeah both <laughs> probably uh yeah so it is a fantastic collection it technically dates back to the 16th century although i only have two things from the 16th century um and the numbers uh pick up as the centuries progress but that's quite normal across dress collections mm. um and there are lots of reasons why but most dress collections really sort of pick up in the georgian period um, and actually, the reason that the, the, the dress is so scarce in the Tudor period is actually one of the reasons why the Baxton Altercloth is such an exciting story, uh, because hardly any of it does exist still. Yeah. Um, so to find uh, provenanced pieces like the Baxton Altercloth is, is really rare and very, very exciting. So we should stop talking about we that should, straight yeah. away. So look, tell me, how did you come across it in the first instance? Well, so... I mean, I guess to sort of, you know, start, start at the beginning, really, um, because of, the, because of the, the nature of my collection, because of where I'm based, um, I often have to reply uh, to inquiries, um, you know, please can I come and see the wardrobe of Anne Boleyn, or please can I come and see the clothes of Elizabeth I, and it's really my sad duty to say, I'm so sorry, you can't come and see those things. Mm. Um, they're not here because they don't exist. Mm. And there are lots of reasons for that. Um, one is uh, one is that the um, basically the value of textiles relative to income in the 16th century was so high that you would never think of just keeping hold of something. You would refashion and repurpose and reuse it, even the really high-status stuff. Um, and you'd hand it down until probably all provenance was lost. Um, also, so we know that the Tudors uh, gave a lot of their clothes away. It was considered very charitable. We also know that uh, the Stuarts really raided the Tudor wardrobe for magnificent jewels. Is that and so right? Yeah, so there's portraits of, um, of uh, James I's uh, queen wearing jewels and clothing there's a real similarity to uh, the, the, the clothes described in the inventories of Elizabeth I 
We also know that they might have traded some of those clothes on the continent. Oh, really? Um, yeah, there are sort of secret letters that talk about the Duke of Buckingham having gone over to the continent to sell bits off when, uh, when money was a bit scarce. <laughs> and then there are other challenges too, because um, the stores of the royal wardrobes uh, were sold off during the Commonwealth sale. Um, after the mm. Civil War. Mm. Uh, and sadly, we know that quite a lot of them were bought by a goldsmith, which probably means that a considerable number were burnt to retrieve the golden bullion content oh, from the fabrics. Golly, right, yes. And, if, and even if it had survived all of that, the stores of the Great Wardrobe were based in the City of London. So, of course, 1666 came along and the Great Fire of London ravaged all of those buildings. Everything so, was going against it. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so there's, there is very, very little provenance to Tudor dress out there. There are a few accessories, um, it's fair to say. There are, you know, hats and riding boots and gloves scattered around the place um, that have good provenance to the Tudor wardrobe. Um, but, but, very, but very little. And so I was writing a book called Tudor Fashion um, to partly to try and fill that gap um, so that visitors and inquirers would, you know, I would be able to give them something mm-hmm. <laughs> and not just say, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> so uh, as I was researching that, I, uh, I basically came across uh, this tiny little uh, website for this tiny little church in rural Herefordshire called St. Faith's in Bacton. Um, and there was a picture on the wall uh, well there was a picture of this this object on the wall and I thought well that looks very 1590s <laughs> and I thought I'd better go and have a look at that um, so so off I went and that's that's when I first saw it some delicious anticipation but I suspect also you were thinking oh it can't possibly be <laughs> it's um, well I mean, it, it, it was very exciting to go and see it um, because it looked really tantalising. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had worked at the V&A before coming here. I've worked with that, you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, bits of textiles. Um, and part of my first job was to get out these examples of textiles to show researchers and students. So I had seen quite a lot. So I sort of knew what I was mm-hmm. looking at. But one of the reasons that it was very particularly exciting mm-hmm. is that the Church of St. Faith in Bacton uh, was the birthplace, an intended burial place, and very beloved childhood home of one Blanche Parry, who was first lady of the bedchamber to Elizabeth I. She was with her from cradle almost to grave, a sort of really stalwart mm. figure in Elizabeth's life. Um, she never married, she stayed by her side all her life. We know they shared a bed, um, as was, you know, kind of quite normal yes. in, in Tudor times. Mm. Um, we know she nursed her through smallpox here at Hampton Court. Mm. So they were really very, very close. And we know that Elizabeth gave gifts of her own clothing to Blanche as a sign of favour. So knowing this, yeah, my heart was slightly in my mouth. So what did you find it when you got there? Well, when, when I walked in, it, it just exceeded all my expectations. And I knew immediately that I was looking at something very exciting and very, very special. And there were a few things that, um, that sort of pointed towards that. One was the quality of the embroidery. So of all the samples of embroidery from the 16th century I've seen, most of it, in fact, all of it has 
being domestic. So that's uh, embroidery done by an amateur hand, generally women at home, either gentlewomen or noble women, who are doing it as a sort of genteel pastime. Um, uh, and this was something different. This looked very, very professional, very skilled, very even, um, and of a really fine quality that I hadn't seen before. Um, and moreover, it was done in silks, mm. coloured silks, but also gold and silver. Mm. So that immediately puts it out of the reach of most people and certainly out of the reach of most of the parishioners of Bacton. Yes, indeed. Um, which is a tiny rural hamlet. Mm. Um, the other thing I noticed was evidence of pattern cutting. So what I was looking at was a T-shaped object, yes. which... Um, is known as the Bacton altar cloth because it had been turned into an altar an altar cloth. Mm. It was um, it meant to drape over an altar, um, but the evidence of pattern cutting means that it had been something else before it was an altar cloth. Can you describe what pattern cutting actually is? Yeah. So so basically, if you have a piece of text, textile, pattern cutting is when you shape it and cut it in a way that makes it a three D. Uh, object so it's a way of shaping it for dress I mean that's really its most kind of common use right um it's to shape it for bodices and sleeves and skirts and so on and there were there was evidence on it of seams and darts and things like that which um I mean not only hinted quite strongly that it had been a dress but I mean in my mind it's it's quite forensic evidence that it you know really it has yeah it was a dress, dress mm. um, of some kind so that was really tantalizing but the clincher was the material that the embroidery was done on and it's cloth of silver so it's um, a, a, a cream silk with an extra weft of silver woven into it. And that's what cloth of silver means, because many people who are listening to this will have, re have read the terms cloth of yeah. gold, cloth of silver, and go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But actually, when you're asked, pressed to describe what that actually means, for somebody who's not not a seamstress or not used to working in textiles, they might know, not know what that means. Yeah, it, so it means what it says. It's, it's an incredible thing so cloth of gold or, or cloth of silver it's basically silk woven with bullion so cloth that in this instance the cloth of silver they would have used a bullion silver um and hammered the the, the silver down until it was incredibly fine and then cut it into strips and use that st that strip almost like a thread on the loom to weave it in with the silk. So just, I mean, to do that alone is an incredible amount of work and labour and expense, mm. um, even before you start embroidering it. But, but really interestingly, cloth of silver, aside from the expense, was reserved by sumptuary law for the upper echelons of court. Mm. So it was reserved for immediate members of the royal family, um, and the very highest level of the nobility, so an earl or a countess. Um, so immediately you you know you're looking at an example of elite court dress. Right. It really narrows the pool. It down. really narrows it down. There's, it has no, and you know, it's it's not the sort of thing that should be in Acton. Yes. It came from somewhere it had else. It comes from the court. <laughs> yes. So it came from, yeah, it came from somewhere else. And we've estimated that the cost of the silver mm. in the altar cloth actually equated to a substantial Tudor mansion. Wow. 
So it really illustrates that, you know, this is something particularly special. Because we forget in our throwaway culture today how cheap curls can be, but just how incredibly expensive they were for people who were in court in the upper echelons of society. And to think that 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 was the equivalent of a Tudor manor house is quite incredible. That was just one dress. Exactly. And we know that uh, at the end of Elizabeth's life, she had uh, almost 2,000 items of dress. Wow. So a really (laughs) magnificent wardrobe of of supreme Mm. expense. Mm. So, um, so, yeah, so, yeah, I was looking at this, and, um, and I, I wasn't there alone, so I was uh, met there by a delegation of the, the village's finest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was there with the church warden and the local historian, Ruthie Richardson. Um, and, you know, th- it was in a frame, it was on the wall, uh, and they had long associated it with Elizabeth. There is a monument to Blanche Parry in the church that she had intended to serve as her tomb mm. um, and in the end Elizabeth wanted her buried close to her so had her buried at Westminster mm. so the tomb lies empty but it is a fantastic bit of late Elizabethan sculpture mm. um, so it you know they had known that there was something special about this it had been framed on the wall in 1909 by the parishioners who knew that it was associated with Blanche or Elizabeth but what they hadn't realized was just how rare it is yeah so you know mm. like like many others perhaps they thought that Hampton Court was full of stuff like that <laughs> um, it's just another old bit of yeah, exactly <laughs> and so to be able to say if it is what I think it is it is the only survivor of its kind in the world yeah um and you know we pretty much decided there and then that really it had to come to Hampton Court for conservation and research mm. Um, the, the work that the, the parishioners had done on it in 1909 um, to, to frame it had had preserved it so you know their care of it had meant that it had survived but more recently the it, it was starting to um, have a detrimental effect so that brings me on to the conservation so you brought it back here to Hampton Court yeah. now First of all, what's the difference between um, there's, there's conserving something, isn't there, and then yes. there's restoring something? So you were looking to conserve this. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. we um, so we have a world class uh, textile conservation studio here at Hampton Court. So it was you know it was in really safe hands when we brought it here. Um, and the difference basically, if they it, restoring something would mean that you were trying to make it look as it used to. Um, so that might mean adding bits, kind of restoring the colour, restoring parts of the fabric, essentially making it look new. And that's not something that we do as best practice um, across museums and heritage organisations by and large. We conserve things, which means we, we stabilise things. Yeah, right. So we, um, we're trying to stop the degradation, halt that, stabilise it and keep it as it is. Um, for you know several hundred more years so that's what uh, that was the plan here um, so it's it's undergone a thousand hours of conservation um, which is probably as as long if not more time than was actually spent making it in the first place so we've really become part of the story um, but that process was really fascinating so how well. did you, yeah what did you you know how on earth do you set about doing that what do you do <laughs> well um yeah, it's it, it very you, you go very carefully, basically, <laughs> and very slowly. 
um, and document each part of it. So the first job was to unframe it from the Edwardian frame, which was very fragile. Um, and they had actually put nails through it to secure it into the frame, so we had to remove those. Um, and we did we did get to it sort of just in time, really, because there were pests in the frame that were eating away at the, the woolen background right. that was surrounding the object. So they were happily munching away on the wool, uh. but they may have gotten to the silk in due course. Yeah. Um, so... And it was backed with a canvas, which is the Edward, is what the Edwardian uh, parishioners put on it to sort of give it some support. But the problem is that silk and canvas react to humidity and different temperatures and environment in different ways. So it was pulling. Okay. So, uh, but they had stitched through it with millions of tiny little stitches to secure it onto this canvas. So it was the job of um, our conservators. Um, and Libby Thompson was the lead on, on that team, to unpick those millions of tiny little stitches, remove the canvas very carefully, at which point we had a bit of a surprise because it was backed with patches of linen, and the linen looked historic. Right. So at which point we stopped and said, we have to investigate this in case the linen is contemporary to the, old, mm. it's contemporary mm. to the object. Mm. Um, and there were patches of historic linen, but it wasn't contemporary to... The original, um, the original object, so it wasn't Tudor. Mm. So we then felt um, okay about removing mm. those patches as well. Um, at which point you're left with this very fragile, unsupported bit of silk. Um, so it was sort of carefully sandwiched in some netting to give it a bit of support. And the team then carefully did a bit of surface cleaning with cosmetic sponges. Right. Mm -hmm. So exactly the same sort of sponges as people would, might use to put their makeup uh -huh. on. It's very, very good at lifting off surface dust. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, and, and dirt. Because yes. you can't wash it. You no. can't wash something like no, this. No, 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 no. And I remember coming and seeing it. Obviously, it was the completed thing by that yeah. stage. But you look, the fine, it was just almost transparent, the fabric. Yeah. It just blew my mind as yeah. how you guys had actually managed to do what you needed to do. So what was the process from there? From with it? there, there. Yeah. I mean, in a way, what was quite nice was that uh, the object uh, started to relax a bit. It sort of been tied onto this canvas and was sort of warping in funny ways. So we left it for a while just to relax and for the warp and the wefts to sort of flatten out and straighten mm -hmm. out again. Mm -hmm. So it sort of shifted dimensions ever so slightly. And then um, the conservation team uh, used a conservation-grade silk um, and basically start uh, and dyed it to colour match the, the altar cloth and then started to uh, re basically re-support it. So in, in a way, the, the techniques that the Edwardians used was the right technique, it's just with the wrong materials. Yeah. Um, yes. So they then started to sort of sew it on and that was you know, a really, really time-consuming part. But during that, we had discovered some really incredible things um, that helped even more with our story. surprises was uh, discovering that the embroidery had actually been done through the cloth of silver 
Right, yes. You, yes, do say more about that, because I remember being fascinated by this aspect of what that actually yeah. meant. So that was a, that was a, a sort of really big surprise to, to see that, and all, it sort of took a while to realise the implications of it as well. The motifs on the, the backs and altar cloth are um, beautiful floral motifs taken from herbals, very particularly Jacques Lemoyne's uh, herbal, um, called La Clef de Champ, which is the key to the fields, which we discovered while we were researching. And that's, that's the 16th century book, yeah. isn't it? It's like a pattern book, exactly. or people used it as a pattern book. So they used, they used that as a pattern. So those motifs are, um, are, are what kind of primarily adorn the altar cloth. And that was a very fashionable motif at the end of the 16th century. But what you generally see is that those motifs are done on things called slips, which is that they're embroidered onto small squares of linen or canvas and then cut out and appliqued onto another finer fabric. And that's for several reasons. It's to, um, it, it's to allow for mistakes, it's to allow for reuse and repurpose. Um, and even in very wealthy households like Bess of Hardwick, um, who was a renowned embroiderer, um, she used that method. But... And, and that was the sort of common way to do it. The fact that the embroidery on the back of cloth is done through the cloth of silver is unique in the world. And it says a few things to us. It says that the embroiderer is... It, it's, it's an act of virtuoso embroidery, basically. Mm. Um, an act of hubris, almost. This is, this is the embroiderer saying, I'm not going to make a mistake. And it's also an act of very conspicuous consumption because it's saying, I can afford to embroider right through this cloth, which costs as much as a significant mansion house. So it really is a really fantastically show-off piece. It's almost, he's almost like, oh, it's a he, right? You remember you saying yeah. most embroiderers were male, which looks like, yeah. wow. <laughs> Professional embroiderers were male. Yeah. Um, domestic embroiderers were women. Right. Okay. Um, so that's the, that's the division. So he's almost like the Holbein of, um, yeah. of textiles yeah. at the time, really. It basically is. It's, it's a technique, you know, e even aside from the provenance, um, you know, it, it, a survival... It, the survival is incredibly rare on the materials and technique basis alone. Um, so that tells us that this was destined for the highest level of customer. Mm. Um, and then we also found out really exciting things about the dye stuffs. Such as? So um, uh, we, we did some dye analysis on the threads and found that the blues are lovely indigo, probably from India via Portugal. And then really excitingly, the reds are Mexican cochineal. So cochineal is, is um, ground, uh, dried and ground beetles. And they provide an incredibly uh, vibrant and long-lasting red. But, of course, Mexico was only conquered in the 1520s. Mm. And so through the 16th century, it was still a very new and luxury commodity. So to have, to have it in the altar cloth is another example of why it's such an elite object. Mm -hmm. yeah. But also it's fantastic primary evidence of global trade. So at the same time, though, you're doing, you kind of, as well as conserving the fabric, you're doing your background research, yeah. aren't you, about some of the things we've already talked about. But what started to tie this in for you in saying that this, this is come, or likely to have come from Elizabeth I's wardrobe? Well, I mean, there, there are lots of, there are lots of things. So as the conservation is proving that it's more expensive than even we had initially thought... Um, I was sort of, you know, hitting the books. 
uh, and trying to uncover more about its story. Um, and uh, one of the brilliant things that we were able to do was to actually identify the books from which the motifs came. Mm. So there are two, two le- levels of embroidery on the altar cloth. One is the primary motifs. Those are the kind of the big, beautiful floral um, motifs that were done by a professional embroiderer. Mm. But then at some stage, probably just a few years later, um, there's a secondary stage of embroidery, which is domestic. So at some point, um, some ladies, and it's a, in a variety of different hands, so it's a group of probably noble ladies because they're working in very fine materials mm. and golds and silvers. Mm. Um, they've gone to work uh, sort of populating the spaces around those motifs with bears and caterpillars and birds and butterflies and creepy crawlies and things like that. Um, but, but they also are using pattern books. Um, which is really interesting because it shows that they have access to books, so they're learned women, mm. um, and uh, you know, and uh, this is a good way to demonstrate that learning and that education, mm. uh, and can communicate that to the world. Because it was a skill, wasn't it? It was. It was yeah. an. Ex- it was an expected skill yeah. of a noble lady to be able to embroider as yeah, part of the, sort of the the range of accomplishments that would have been expected yeah and the fact that they're using books as their source material is a way of sort of showing off a little bit more about what they you know mm. what they can do mm. and what they have mm. um but we we basically found the books that they used um and one of the, the sort of the major books that they used um, is by Nicholas de Bruin, um, who was working from the Low Countries. And uh, they used a book called Four-Legged Animals. And so there's a bear that's straight after there's a stag, a dog, a hunting scene. So it's really, it's really interesting. This gave us a slight problem, however, because it gave us an earliest date. Because Nicholas de Bruin didn't publish his book until 1594. Right. Blanche Parry died in 1590. Okay. Yes. So suddenly it's it's definitive proof that this cannot have been a gift from the Queen to Blanche Parry. Mm. It's just too late. Mm. I mean, stylistically, I'd kind of suspected that anyway, but to have that evidence was really... Right. That, you know, kind of clinched mm. the deal. Um, so we started to kind of look into, um, into sort of different ways that... Um, you know, how did it get to Bacton, if not via Blanche? Um, so we've basically been kind of working on um, uh, looking through letters and journals and diary uh, mm. entries and things like that. Um, and everything seems to be pointing right now to um, the fact that it was, it was sent to Bacton, uh, very probably by Elizabeth's ladies in memory of Blanche. Oh, I see. So there's a really, really interesting window around the time that Elizabeth died when a lot of her goods and possessions are being sorted out by her very small coterie of very trusted ladies who had been Blanche's friends. They're the sort of the more elderly ladies mm. that were, were by Elizabeth's side. And they were sorting things um, and packaging things up as they had done all of their careers with Elizabeth because that was their role and their duty mm. they were responsible for her wardrobe for dressing her but also distributing clothes as gifts and favours mm. um, and so there are very strong leads right now that suggest that at the point that Elizabeth died that some of her goods might have been packaged up and sent off by these ladies and, um, and, and there's this kind of strong uh, there's a strong line of evidence that suggests that this was sent to Bacton in memory 
of Blanche by her former friends and by her former mistress. That's very interesting. Are you still pursuing that? Are you still I delving am, and yeah, digging? I am. I am. I am. Like, you can see that I'm sort of, you know, I'm sort of saying the threads are there. Yes. We're following those threads. Um, yeah, but it's I'm, you know, I am kind of confident enough to kind of posit as a, posit that as a theory, certainly. And I mean, I should say as well, um, you know, we I. It is a big claim to make. You know, the, the, the exhibition is called The Lost Dress mm. of Elizabeth I. Um, you know, which is a, it's a, it's, it's a bold title. It is a bold statement, yes. Um, and of course, you know, as a historian, I'm much more comfortable with uh, maybes and probabilities and, and nice caveats that I can not, not hide behind, but you know, that, are, you know, that, that provide that academic room for doubt. Yes, yes. But I've had so many people, experts, curators, um, uh, scholars, into scrutinise the, the cloth um, with the intention of having it peer reviewed. But when, when people see the altar cloth, when they see the level of work and the level of expertise in it, um, you know, they all have that bow moment too. So it's yeah. it's pretty convincing, isn't it? Is it is pretty convincing, and and there's lots of other anecdotal things around it because, of course, the one thing we haven't mentioned yet is the rainbow portrait. Well, I was going to come on because you talked about the exhibition, and yeah. I wanted to talk about you know maybe you could talk about the exhibition yeah. and, and what's in it, and 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 of course the, the rainbow portrait yeah. is linked to that. So. Yeah, it's really funny. There's so much to say about it that there you know kind of something you can even miss out these massively kind of important aspects of it. Um, Yes, so we have put it on display at Hampton Court in one of the Tudor apartments, so uh, the rooms that Elizabeth and probably Blanche knew. Um, And uh, it's gone on display with some of the books that inspired the embroidery, so uh, Jacques Lemoyne's Le Clef de Champ is there, Mm -hmm. Um, alongside some of um, of the Tudor slips that illustrate how the technique was usually done mm-hmm. um, almost by comparison to show this is how it's usually done but look how amazing the Baxton altar cloth is um, and also Nicholas de Bruin's four-legged animals is there so that you can directly compare the little bear and some of the other creatures there um, uh, alongside uh, William Cecil's own herbal which is really exciting that we've borrowed from Hatfield House okay. to show the, the you know the tradition and history of using herbals for embroidery mm. But um, aside from the Baxton altar cloth, which is undoubtedly the star of the, the show, um, is uh, Elizabeth herself in the form of the rainbow portrait overlooking all the proceedings. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, I mean, one of the other really exciting things about the Baxton altar cloth, of course, is that it's got this tantalising similarity uh, to the bodice worn by Elizabeth in the rainbow portrait. So the rainbow portrait is a portrait circa 1600 um, and it's variously attributed to Marcus Gerarts or um, Isaac Oliver mm-hmm. um, and it's on loan to us from Hatfield House. But for my money, it's, a, the, it's the ultimate kind of Tudor portrait of symbolism um, because it's called the rainbow portrait because she's holding a rainbow with the motto non sine sole iris, no rainbow without the sun. Mm-hmm. So Elizabeth is is the sun, the sun. around which everything revolves. Yeah. Um, Very clever, actually. Um, that it's yeah, an incredibly clever it uh, metaphor that's been used in that painting. Yeah, I always think absolutely, and you know, it kind of fits in with with the mythologizing of her as a goddess and mm. this kind of celestial being. Um, f- very famously, she's wearing an uh, orange 
uh, gown, which is possibly painted with um, eyes and ears. Mm. So she sees and hears all. Mm. Um, she's got a serpent on her sleeve, a beautiful applique embroidered serpent, which we know uh, was real. It's, it's listed in her inventories. Right. It represents wisdom mm. um, and intelligence. And the, the Elizabethan court loved codes mm. and, and sort of puzzles. So they, they knew, understood. They knew, didn't they? They knew how to read all of this in yeah. a way that's become lost to us for yeah. most people. Yeah. Exactly. It's, you know, for, them, for them, it's really easy to read all of that symbolism. Mm. Um, and in the serpent's mouth is a little heart-shaped jewel which represents mercy. So it was considered that intelligence and mercy together were the sort of you know, attributes required by mm. a sovereign to govern wisely. And the bodice features these incredibly beautiful flowers which are very, very similar to the Bacton altar cloth. And even, you know, they, they're not just there as beautiful, pretty things. They are there to have a meaning as well. And it, it, that goes back to the books. Mm. So that's to say she's educated, she's learned. And at the time, with the great voyages of discovery across the Atlantic and things like that, it was a time of great classification. And so that you, you know, people were busy classifying the natural world and its wonders. Mm. And it's a way of saying that Elizabeth has got mastery not only of books and scholarship, but of the natural world itself, I think. Wow. There's so much in that portrait, isn't there? There's so On much. so many levels. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, another, I mean, another really important aspect of it is that she's almost 70 in that portrait. And she's got a very low-cut bodice, hasn't she, yeah. in that picture, I noticed. Perhaps uh, almost re- reminiscent of the sort of 1530s and 40s to me, you know, with the very square... Yeah. Le- that always surprises me. I'm not an expert on costume, but it does always surprise me that it is quickly quite revealed. It's, it's because um, it, it's only virgins who are allowed to bear their, 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 their um, yes. decolletage. <laughs> yes, that's a nice word. Yes. Uh, so only virgins. So even though she's nearing 70, it's a way of demonstrating her virginity. So yeah, more symbolism, more even, symbolism. even in that. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, but I mean, certainly she doesn't look nearly 70 no, she in that doesn't. portrait no, no. she looks very youthful that's again part of mythologizing her as a sort of ageless timeless divine being i guess but more than that it also we we do also have to acknowledge the fact that she, she did have considerable vanity uh we know that because she didn't allow mirrors at court after a certain point and we know that she really didn't like to have other young women at court um, who might uh, uh, challenge the, you know, her attention of um, the, the young men at court. She liked to have that attention for herself. Um, and uh, so, you know, she had her, her ladies tended to be older ladies, like Blanche, very pious, very somberly dressed. Mm. If there were maids of honour there, they were told in no uncertain terms that they had to dress down. They were under no circumstances allowed to dress as finely as the Queen. And we know there are documented instances where she would publicly humiliate ladies that the maids of honour if they dressed too finely, <laughs> which all helps support the story of the Bacton altar cloth because, because of the rainbow portrait, we know the Bacton altar cloth was fit for a Queen. Mm. And we know at the time that she didn't allow anybody else to dress as nicely as her. And given that this was this is you know such conspicuous consumption intended for the highest level of customer, I can't imagine her brooking that sort of competition for mm. somebody else to wear it. So although it's just anecdotal evidence, 
um, it, it's another it the all plot adds it all adds story. doesn't it yeah, yeah. So, so people can come and see the exhibition. Um, yeah. where, when's it on till? What? It's on until the 23rd of February um, at Hampton Court. Yes. So members go free, but it's, it's open every day. Um, and what, what will happen after? Well, the, the altar cloth uh, belongs to the church in Backton still. Mm-hmm. So it is on long loan to us. Um, but the church in Backton has a, a very high-resolution photographic replica. So you can go and see... The replica of it in situ with the um, uh, with Blanche's mm. memorial. Um, so, I mean, I, I, the, the, its future is uh, is that for the foreseeable future it will remain with us, mm. so that we can care for it properly in conservation grade um, facilities. Um, and uh, you know, we will continue to research and write about it, and publicise it, and talk about it, so that we can share it as widely as possible. But is it is it not possible to have it on display permanently because it's too fragile for that? You have That's to right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, with historic textiles, light is a serious um, problem. Mm. So um, after a while, light actually begins to structurally structurally degrade the the fabric right. itself. So it has a certain allowance of light right. that it's allowed to have uh, before it needs to go and have a rest for a certain period. So it's been uh, it, it, the exhibition opened in October um, and will close in February. But of course, before that, it has been out in the light mm-hmm. in the church. So it needs to have a bit of a rest now in the dark. That's not to say we can't go and look at it occasionally, but it, it needs to have a bit of a rest. So it may be that we see the Bampton altar cloth again, but it has to yeah. have its time in the dark it does. to make sure that future generations can continue exactly. to enjoy it. Exactly. But I would highly recommend if people can get to see it before February, um, definitely come because it's been a real eye-opener for me to see it on display. Um, because having the low lights on it has given it a whole new lease of life. The low lighting in the space... I think probably emulates the torchlight or candlelight that it would probably have been seen oh, in. Yes. And it glitters. And oh, so wonderful. it gives you this whole new insight into how the Tudor court must have looked with those dull sort of fabrics and the velvets and things. And as the sumptuary laws allowed um, people higher up the social strata to wear different colours and shinier fabrics. And, you know, you can imagine the Queen there in cloth of silver. She must have just... Been, yeah, she yeah, must have been shone, yeah, she must have shone, she must have been so visible. And, and then it's then that's it's really interesting that because it's the part of the visibility piece, isn't yeah. it? Being able to stand out from all those people around her. Yeah. Well, I haven't seen it on display. I saw it as as you know oh as a gosh. as a preview. So I'm here today to enjoy the Christmas fair, and I'm going to go over and have a look at the uh, exhibition while I'm here. But may I thank you very much for speaking to us today. It's been really fascinating. Oh well, no, thank you so much. As you can tell, I can talk about this all. <laughs> day <laughs> well we appreciate it and maybe we'll talk again in the future about another discovery that you oh, might come across <laughs> i can't imagine anything like this i've got to say but we'll keep our fingers crossed yeah indeed all right thanks ever so much thank you so as you heard the backton altar cloth will not be on display and accessible to the public for that long before it is put away in the dark to rest so if you can get to see it It is really, really mind-blowingly beautiful. 
Well, that brings us to the end of December's episode of the Tudor Travel Show. And we are hurtling headlong toward Christmas. So, yes, I guess all that remains for me to say is it has been a pleasure to be podcasting with you over the last 12 months. January will mark the first anniversary of the Tudor Travel Show. And so I look forward to celebrating that when we will be talking all about the Howards. But until then, have a fabulous Christmas and I look forward to catching up with you all in the new year when there is so much going on. I really look forward to taking you with me on some amazing Tudor adventures. Mm -hmm.